Hey everyone, and welcome to a November slash December edition of the Open System Podcast. Today I got a really great opportunity to interview a colleague and a friend, Blake Noel. Now, I've known Blake for the past year and a half, and one of the things I've just always admired about him is his ability to diagnose problems, call challenges, real challenges, um, never be afraid to interrupt a meeting when he feels like the real question in the room isn't being asked. And I think you see that in the interview today. Uh, Blake recently completed his dissertation, which means he's about to graduate from the University of Michigan with a doctorate. So it's a pretty incredible thing for him and his family and for his community to celebrate. Now, what Blake asked us to do in his dissertation is ask a really important fundamental question um, of our students. How do you want to be called? How do we respect you in the classroom? And how do we create dignity and opportunity for all um, by interrupting racist habits in the system? I mean, I think this is a really important conversation, very timely conversation, and I think we're going to do something a little different in the podcast today, which was dive deep into his work and unpack the argument. If you're interested at all in questions around family engagement in schools, anti-racist work in schools, and how we interrupt some of these important patterns um, that are holding our kids back, then I think you're really going to enjoy and appreciate today's podcast. Blake, thanks for being on. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. So let's start with uh, the first question. Let's, let's, who are you and what was your inspiration for this amazing research? Tell us about your story. Yeah, so, you know, I... Um am a member or representative of the kind of communities that most education reformers are, are trying to help or trying to impact. Uh, I grew up poor, black, urban, um, all the normal uh, blight that you would have in, a, in an urban community was uh, very much a part of my lived experience and I literally thought that was normal uh, for the majority of my life. Um, when I got out of undergrad, I started thinking about how I can impact the world, what I could do, and you know, I started thinking about how I could help my people. And the basic idea was, you know, if people could think better, they could do better. Mm. Um, and so I chose education as a place to go. Um, and I was a teacher in Chicago Public Schools for four years. Um, I saw a lot. I saw a lot of different things. And one of the things that would happen to me when I was in Chicago Public Schools is people would come to my classroom all the time. They'd send all these researchers and people from the district. And they, they would come in the room and they'd say these insulting things to me, like, you know, the kids listen to you and the kids do what you say. And I used to think what is wrong with you? What kind of standard is that, right? But then you go to other classrooms in the school and you see it. You see that the kids are not listening, the kids are not paying attention. The other thing that they would always say to me is they would say, the kids listen to you because you're an alpha male and you're cool. And you know, I, I, I always felt slighted by that because I felt like it um, overlooked all the work that I did, all the practices, the, the intentional language that I was using to connect with my kids. And so- It reduced know, it. Yeah, it turned it into just an identity thing. And I was like, no, 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 this is not my identity. I'm not representing myself. I'm doing the job, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and one of the profound experiences that I had as a teacher in Chicago Public Schools was there was a white woman in my building who was all of 5'1", all of 95 pounds. Um, and she had a great classroom, too. She had great relationships. She had great interactions. She had kids learned. It was productive, all those things. And so I'm looking and I'm saying, no, 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 no. If, if this white woman can do some of these things that I'm doing, there must be something else. And that really led me to graduate school, man. I was thinking about how to um, scale up 
the good practices and the good things that I was doing in my classroom with other teachers who didn't have my identity. I wanted to really focus on practices and think about um, helping more teachers to have um, better outcomes with their students, the students that look like me, the students that look like my friends and our kids and my godchildren and all that good stuff. So that's the inspiration for this research, clearly having read some kind of key chapters from your dissertation that you just graduated. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you, sir. It's Thank a big you. deal. <laughs> That's what they tell you. That's what they keep telling me. <laughs> Have you started putting doctor on all your, no. uh, all your emails yet? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I've only called myself doctor one time so yeah. far. Yeah. I, you know, it's, uh, my dad's always like, you gotta, you gotta tell everyone to do that. And I'm like, no, I think it's weirder when you tell people to do that, dad, you know? <laughs> so I don't know what that is, but, um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Having read it, I have to say, you know, I know we're uh, colleagues and friendly, but I would say that it's very well written and the structure of the argument is extremely compelling. And so I'd love to be, you know, one of the things we're going to do during our podcast today is we're going to kind of start big and then focus down. Cool. So let's just begin with what's the, what's the big idea here in your dissertation? Uh, the main contribution of my dissertation, I would say, is... Uh, an advance in the theory of how we are approaching problems of um, racial injustice. Um, you know, the implicit theory right now that we're working with is that this is a conscious process. If you look at things yeah. like professional development work, uh, they're going to bring you into a room and have you talk about your identity, and then somehow after that you're going to do better in the world. And, you know, in education literature, there's 40 years to say that's not going to happen. The first paper that came out to say that wasn't going to happen, uh, the first one I used is 1985, 1986. Um, so we've known for a long time. So what I was trying to do is move from kind of amorphous, unconscious, subconscious uh, beliefs and, and ideals to actually thinking about practically how does racism happen? I was trying to operationalize racism. Yeah. What does that mean? How do, you, how do you do it? So you tell me you have a belief, but all of our beliefs are not equally effective. They don't all, they're not equally impactful. Um, and so I was trying to find a way to think about how racism is operationalized. And so I think the main contribution of my paper is this idea that um, the enactment of racism is actually based on habits of whiteness. Yeah. That these are um, behaviors that we've learned through culture, through our past, through the society. They work um, the way habits work. They, they achieve the outcome that makes us feel comfortable. It's predictable. Um, and also, it was moving away from the kind of blame game, um, you're a bad person, blah, 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 because people can't engage in that. Mm -hmm. It's just not effective. So for me, it was really trying to think of um, how can we impact this really big issue of race in ways that are actually effective and actually um, accessible to the people that we want to talk to. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is walking into a room and telling people that they're racist doesn't build anything. So I, I think that, you know... I'm, if anything, I, it burns it down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things is we, we tend to think of these things in these uh, idealized ways where we're like, you know, I'm the good person and I'm attacking the bad person. The truth of it is I'm just a person and you're just a person. And if you feel attacked, you feel attacked and you can't engage. Yeah. So um, I was really trying to move away from that kind of um, righteous indignation mm -hmm. and move more into a space of like, how can I work with the people who, frankly, I need to work with to change? Who, in your argument in your paper, are pre predominantly the white teaching workforce um, in our nation's schools? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you think about having an impact, right, you know, you want to have the biggest impact you can have, and yeah. that's to work with the biggest group you can work with, and the majority of teachers in this country are white women. Mm -hmm. um, the thing about habits of whiteness, though, that I don't know that always comes across 
is that lots of people embrace habits of whiteness. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an American trend. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's research about um, having a teacher that matches your identity, reducing the achievement gap. Mm -hmm. There's also research out there about um, black teachers being more punitive to black students. Yeah. Um, because these things are, are habits. These things are built in. Mm -hmm. So it's actually interesting that we're doing uh, this podcast recording this week because actually there was a uh, piece of research that came out um, alongside some stuff around leaders, uh, educators of color, saying that 40% of America's public schools don't have a single educator of color. 40% of America's schools don't have one single educator of color. So the issue of navigating lines of difference is real. It's very much alive. And you're uh, kind of teaching, I mean, when you were going to school K through 12, how many educators of color did you have in, in your experience? I had teachers of color in my K and pre-K experience. And uh, that was it. I had a mentor of color who I never took a class with him in high school. Mm -hmm. But that's it. I never had a teacher of color. I had one Latino male educator, K through 12. And he was a social studies teacher, and he frankly wasn't a great social studies <laughs> teacher. Um, but, you know, props to him for, uh, for, for being there. Um, uh, but... So, you know, you talk about teaching across difference, um, and you have this quote here, which I really love, is that, you know, you, you, you're mostly talking about, you know, given that white women are the predominant uh, aspect of the teaching mm -hmm. workforce, mm -hmm. and you have this quote that I thought was very powerful, is that racism accompanies most white female teachers into the classroom. I love that line. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, that word of accompanies. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about that for a second. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, when you get into the consciousness and, and unconsciousness, you get into things like blame, guilt, um, again, you know, psychologically very difficult constructs to deal with, uh, to internalize. Like, how do you hold that? I'm bad. Yeah. How do you hold that? Um, and so what I was trying to get at with this idea of accompanies is that it's kind of like clothing. I mean, it's kind of like just a part of being in the society. You're, you're putting these things on. You're wearing these things without even necessarily knowing it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that, you know, if you look at the impact of teacher education, which is almost none, yeah. <laughs> what we're actually seeing most teachers do in classrooms is a very personal version of practice. Yeah. And so if you're not being impacted by um, your training, and you are really being impacted by your society and your socialization, your acculturation, um, then what ends up happening is that these, these biases, these, um, yeah, these racist tendencies, they just come along right with you, right yeah. into the room. You know, I think this is a big shift in our language, actually, or at least I would say in usage of language. You know, I think my, my parents' generation, when they think of racist, they think of Bull, Bull Connor. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yes, they, exactly. think, they think of the bigot who exactly. is actively hurting someone or mm -hmm. actively uh, stopping someone from voting. But I think in our modern usage, we're really thinking about the person who has access to privilege and power in a predominantly society where they belong to the person, the, the group that belongs to that and owns that power and privilege. I mean, I think that's a big shift. So by being white by, or being seen as white, you have access to that privilege and you are therefore, uh, in, you know, in reinforcing or reifying ra racist, racism through your work. So this idea of accompanying, you know, it's kind of like the, the clothes or your luggage or a, yep. a ghost that falls alongside you. It yep. comes inside the classroom with you as a teacher. Yep. Um, I think it's a really powerful redefinition or rethinking around some of this stuff. And you introduced this phrase, um, which I feel like is the next stage in our conversation, which is a normative teaching. Okay. What do you what do you mean by normative teaching? Right. So normative teaching is a way that I try to describe the majority of teaching practice in this country. Mm -hmm. And so if we start with a couple of, of facts, right, that you know most teachers we've known since Lordy 
that most teachers enter teacher education knowing what they want to do and knowing what they want to be, and that teacher education doesn't actually move you. It's one of the reasons why teaching is such a conservative field, mm -hmm. because generation after generation is trying to replicate the generation before them. Yeah. So how do you actually move forward, you know? Um, and so normative teaching, the way I was trying to use that as a way to describe what's happening in most classrooms. We take away the training aspect of it, we look at the teacher. What is the teacher actually bringing into the room? Because that's what we're going to actually be experiencing as, yeah. as students or as people in education. And that is primarily what white women who are not poor, who are not urban, that's the majority of teachers, are bringing with them into the classroom in terms of um, their model of teaching, what they think is, needs to be accomplished, but also their own socialization, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what they've learned, what they've been exposed to. So for instance, um, there's been work since the mid-90s. Um, Zeichner talks about this, mm -hmm. monocultural teachers, right? Yeah. So you know, how do you build your uh, ability to communicate well with other people and to socialize? By tons of practice. Mm -hmm. Well, if you grew up in a community like most Americans that's racially isolated, where you're only around people ma mainly like you, economically and racially. And increasingly so. Right. You, you, what is your capacity to then navigate difference? Yeah. How are you going to do that? You don't have practice. You don't have enough at-bats, you know? So we know that there's going to be some <laughs> uh, what they call cultural divides in the classroom, right? Um, and so, yeah, I was trying to find a way to describe teaching practice at large um, without kind of getting into all the particulars. No, I, I like that phrase. And you have another line in here that you think is quoted from Albrecht and Larrabee, but, you know, schools serve society, American schools serve the society by producing and reproducing inequity. And so, you know, therefore, normative teaching reproduces and produces inequity. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and so you spend a good part of your kind of thesis really kind of drawing a clear causal link between, hey, this is the great majority of our teachers that are from this part of society, that are bringing this practice in the classrooms, teaching kids of color, and we're getting these outcomes, then normative teaching has a pretty clear through line to the production or reproduction of inequities. That's right, that's right. And we didn't get here by accident. Yeah. You know, we, we, you know one of the things I think people should understand is that schools are working well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also have this quote I love too. We must recognize that teachers have sole discretion about what they choose to notice, how they make sense of students, which I think is pretty key to your thesis in the long term, and how they respond to a situation. They choose the consequences and punishments for student behaviors, acting as judge, jury, and executioner in the classroom. That's a really powerful line. Yes. Um, well, you know, one of the things that happens when you start trying to talk about teaching is people want to rope in everything else. You know, they call it the, uh, the, the looking out the window hypothesis, right? You know, yeah. what's wrong with your classroom? I don't know. Let's look out the window, right? But the, the, the truth of the matter is that there are discretionary moments that only the teacher is in charge of, that right. there's actually no outside evaluator comes in. So Ten, nobody, tens of thousands of those moments every day. Every day. In the classroom. Every day. Yeah. The, the, the way you interpret a child leaning in his chair or looking out the window is actually only up to you. Yeah. Um, the, the principal doesn't come in the room and tell you to do that. Right? Now, one of the things that I had to, that I should recognize and, and I did in my paper is to say that the context can support or not support that behavior. Yeah. So that, that's also a part of it, right? When you look at discipline gap or achievement gap, there are other adults that have to be complicit. Administrators. But, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so if the, the principal in my school said only bad teachers send kids out of the classroom. They were trying to interrupt that. Right. Yeah. So kids didn't get suspended as much because teachers were like, wow, that's going to reflect negatively on me. Mm -hmm. Right. The context didn't support it. So that, that's real. But, you know, I wanted to focus on the teaching. I didn't want to get into the, yeah. you know, what does the society do or what are the rules or the testing. I want to talk about what teachers can do. Because the reality is, you know, there's so many enabling factors around the education system. And, of course, education reform and policymakers are always trying to 
implement those factors, but the reality is that nothing as substantial as the contact hours and experience a, a student has with a teacher over the course of, of a day, over a year, over years. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that even comes close to this. That's right. So I love that you really zoom in on this, and you talk about how it replicates inequities across the um, kind of entire system. You talk about gifted and talented identification rates, special education identification rates, discipline gaps. And so I think, again, you, know, you really draw a pretty clear causal link between you know, systemic inequity, normative teaching, and the interactions between a teacher and a student in the classroom. And with that, I think the logic of your, um, of your piece is, is very, very strong. And so kind of with that, I want to pull to the next stage of the argument that you really talk about here. So you really talk about, um, and we'll pivot back to some teaching stuff here because there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, you have this line that I really love. First, teaching is at the center of Venn diagrams of race-based inequity in school in school outcomes. Um, like teaching is at the center. That's what we're talking about here. Um, but then you pivot to talking about um, racism. So if, if really if teaching is at the center and racism is, you know, a, a huge component of this, you talk about racism as a habit. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really pretty important aspect. And I think one of the more dynamic arguments you make in the paper, because I think a lot of people would be with you and say, okay, I get it. You know, white folks in classrooms, kids of color, we're getting bad outcomes. But then you say racism is a habit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a, oh, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. I think it's very powerful. What do you mean mean by racism is a habit? Yeah, so there's a a couple of ways to think about this. So a habit is basically a way to describe what we do most of the time, right? And so normative teaching is what we're doing most of the time, right? So uh, habits work this way. You have a cue, you have an action, and then you have a feeling at the end of it, a reward. And so the important thing about habits to recognize is that these, all these processes happen without interacting with your conscious mind, mm-hmm. right? So when you see, uh, when your alarm goes off in the morning, you do certain things. The way you brush your teeth, the way you tie your shoes, the way you drive home from, from work, all of these things are, there's a cue, it's time to leave work. Then you have a habit. I go to my car, at this, I park at this place, I drive home this way, and then you have the reward, the feeling that I got home either the fastest way or the least traffic, whatever it is that you value, right? Yeah. All of that actually happens without having to pass through your conscious mind. It's a, it's a cognitive technique. Your brain is actually built to see patterns and your brain is built to save energy. Yeah. So whenever your brain can duck off into a habit and not have to actually do the big thinking, it will, right? Yeah. So then you think about, okay, well, what would it mean for a person or a group of people to mm-hmm. interact with a society, to interact mm-hmm. with an ecosystem, right? And so if we live in a society where the context is... Uh, colonial context, right? Mm-hmm. We live in a, a colony yeah. and we have white supremacy and yeah. we have capitalism. Well, what are the ways that we develop to interact with those systems and those contexts uh, normally, regularly, routines, mm-hmm. right? And so this is how we've gotten to habits of whiteness and, and then uh, mm-hmm. uh, that being habits of racism. That being these things that we do without thinking about it once we get cued to something. So an excellent example of this in the discipline gap is the punishment of three and four and five year old black male children. Yeah. The cue that the teacher is, is, is seizing on is he's black and he's male. The automatic feeling that goes along with that for most people in the society is something along fear, anxiety, uh, um, threat. Right? Yeah. Well, those feelings shut down your cognitive ability. You, you can only do fight, fight, or fright when, yeah. you're, when you're threatened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the teachers default into this fear model, and then the, res- the, the, the result of it is to get rid of the child, yeah. to exclude the child. Then you feel better. The teacher feels better. All of that happens without her thinking consciously, yeah. right? Because if you actually paused and thought consciously, 
how scary can a three-year-old really be? I mean, you know, yeah. this be real. Like, what can a what can a four-year-old actually do to an that's adult? Right. You know, I mean, it's not really a threatening situation. Um, and so that's how we end up with these horrible outcomes across the board. It's not because people stop and pause and, and, and or consciously say things like, I hate these kids, and none of that is happening. It's just that they're cueing on something, they, they get this visual signal that already means something because it means something in the society, and then pop, they, they go into their default uh, habits, and then on the back end, they don't consciously evaluate it. They, yeah. they just feel better. You don't really consciously evaluate your habits um, unless they're probably usually in some cases doing something to you that's really negative or you have a visual uh, or a sense of how it's hurting other people and even that it's really challenging actually, right? Yeah, I mean habits are not conscious. Yeah. You know, so so when you think about a habit and you say you say to somebody like what are your habits, they wouldn't be able to tell you because their habits are just the things that they always do. Yeah. They don't have to think about doing And those even if things. they raise to the level of noticing um, there's a, another thousand habits beneath that that we're not ever really able to be conscious of. That's right. And the other thing that happens is, is when you first just notice, you don't think of it as something you're doing. You think about it as just the way it is. Yeah. You know, it just makes sense. It's just the way we do things around yeah. here. You know. That's right. Um, you have to be problematized by somebody else usually. Well, I, you know, let's take it outside of education for a second and use this analogy. You know, you know, white people talking to other white people find agreement, find it easier then find reward through those conversations. Man, it was so easy to get business done with that person. It was really easy. Or, you know, I was sitting down with this person, we just really agree about the issues. Um, so you have these habits of your affinity patterns, of your relationships, of where you go to bank, where you actually go to eat. And these habits feel good, they make you feel great. And then you have these moments where you're out of those elements. Those don't feel so good. It feels more, it feels awkward. You're using different types of language, social cues, cultural cues. You don't have a habit base built in that and especially in a society where white supremacy and whiteness is the dominant norm and the dominant structure of our society if you're a benefit of white privilege and you have a habit base associated with that you feel good a lot that's right you feel really good a lot that's right and you have a hard time understanding the other side of the spectrum here that's right that's right you know um the difference between a habit and an addiction is that a uh, addiction has negative outcomes for you or has negative outcomes for people around you. And um, one of the tricky things about race and, and racism is that the way it makes people feel is actually good. Yeah. Uh, that, that people feel like they're getting a return uh, oftentimes, um, whether that's conscious or not conscious, um, that there's this feeling that this is working out well, that this is actually benefiting me. Um, and you know, you're, you know, it's, it's funny to think about what times in the society that we step back from that position and think, well, maybe actually being more inclusive would be better for us, right? Yeah. Um, you look at a, a nation at risk, mm-hmm. and then you look at no child left behind, and you think about, well, what are the arguments for why do we start needing to include other people? Mm-hmm. You know, um, because for so long, for so much of the time, it just it produces things that make me feel good, mm-hmm. uh, and that's one of the scary parts about it. I think, you know, I think about healthcare in this example, you know, like we're going through this big debate in this country for the last decade around uh, Medicaid expansion. You know, that's just like a total cue for a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, this in my individual action doesn't really hurt other hurt me. uh, But like by not recognizing the collective in this moment, like we're we're excluding other people from the the power and from the resource. Yeah. So like returning. But I think this is I wanted to explore it from a couple different angles before we turn back to this. Um, you, you, know, you said, you quote uh, Duhigg here, habits emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost 
any routine into a habit because habits allow our mind to ramp down more often. Then you go, habits are short, shortcuts. They are the original life hacks, <laughs> providing ease and efficiency of producing predictable outcomes. Yes. That actually, yes. that sounds like white supremacy to me. That sounds like whiteness engaging with whiteness and reifying power structures. Yes. I mean, you know, habits make things easier. I yeah. mean, that's why we do them. You know, we, we're, we are energy conserving mm-hmm. devices. You yeah. Know? So if we're living in a world where the majority of teachers are a certain background, where a normative teaching practice is based on their identity and that it's producing inequity and that we think about habits as a product of their racist, uh, you know, their background's identity and the, the work that they're doing, how do we interrupt these habits? How do we get people to, to stop doing the things that they're unconsciously doing? And we talked about this at the beginning of the piece a little bit, but let's go there. Yeah, so, you know, one of the great things about habits, you know, for me, like I said, the lens is about effectiveness and, 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 and impact. And one of the great things about habits is that other people have been studying this. Yeah. So, so there are other models, right? So when we think about um, habits as addictions, for instance, um, there are some pretty popular models out there and, and things that have been able to really help people, mm-hmm. uh, really help people to live better lives, happier lives, to have more self-control over their lives, right? Yeah. Because when you're acting out of habit, you're not in control. Um, that, that's like a you know a primal kind of a behavior you know, um, so a couple of things that I've thought of, but you know looking forward honestly I would love to build this out empirically mm-hmm. I would love to test it, but a couple of things you know first of all um, you know one of the things that needs to happen is you need to raise people's consciousness mm-hmm. or interrupt uh, from yeah. the cue to the behavior. So for instance um, you know when it's Alcoholics Anonymous they have the mm-hmm. famous intervention mm-hmm. and people sit down with you and they tell you your behavior is affecting negatively in the following ways. Yeah. You know I honestly think that that could be done in most schools mm-hmm. with the kids and the teacher. I mean you, you could say to the kids like you know what's going on here and, and, and I'm pretty sure the kids would be able to say there are a few things that you do that really mess it up for me that really make it difficult for me to connect with you to engage with you. Um, things that again the teacher probably doesn't even it's not even aware of you know Um, another one is you need to provide people with alternatives so you you can't replace a behavior with nothing Mm -hmm. you you can't say to somebody stop being racist there's like a dot 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 and then what or stop smoking right and then what right so you know for smokers a short term thing is is a sucker right like because they have the oral fixation thing right so it's the same thing with teaching one of the things that I try to do is say in my piece at least let me raise consciousness about this let me bring this to, to, to the light let me bring this to your mind and then also to suggest you know there's some things you could do instead of doing the things that you're currently doing there's a bunch of other things that the literature talks about. Um, you need a supportive community. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you need to believe eventually that the belief part, the conscious belief part, really does matter. That so, matters. Yeah. So when people look at um, Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, um, there are differential outcomes for people who actually believe the Christian, the Christian, the Christianity yeah. aspect of the it. The higher power. Yes, and other people who don't, and yeah. and then you have differential outcomes. You're a lot more likely to go back to drinking if you don't buy the belief part, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's some other things um, that, that could go along with that I would love to develop. You know, in, the, uh, in my previous line of work, we, I know we've spoken about this uh, individually, but I think it's important to bring up in this context is um, a lot of bias work around the work of relationships and the way relationships can interrupt bias. Um, and, you know, I think there's this phrase, you know, individuation, you know, the ability to see someone as an individual versus a part of the larger group. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, and also a part of a large group or being able to actually see someone as a human being with an individual set of preferences and choices and background versus like this is the black boy in my classroom mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I have all these assumptions about what a black boy mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. And you have this, um, 
you have this, you really pivot to relationships as being a way to interrupt this work. And you teacher-student relationships, you say teacher-student relationships across difference are key in two ways. Relationships are key in this targeted research intervention because improved relationship quality is the proximal immediate outcome by this research, sought by this research. Relationships are also key in the sense they will allow teachers and students to enter in new spaces and leave new ones behind. The primacy of relationships is due to their impact as well as their potential for animating other positive outcomes. Relationships are the crux of teaching and learning. I love that. Why do you think so many teachers and in our education field, we, do, we talk transactionally about relationships, but not transformatively about relationships? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of these things, um, that's a great question because I think you're right. And I, and I think, um, you know, when I think about some of the, the teacher-student relationship stuff, um, it's, it's really the lens of power. Yeah. You know, one of the things, for instance, that a lot of teachers don't seem to be aware of is that students are aware of your bias. Mm -hmm. Students see it. Students know it. it. A lot of teachers think if I say it, I'm the authority figure and the kids just accept it. That's absolutely not true. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows very clearly that students are aware of bias against them. They're aware of racism against them. Um, and so, you know, the idea here is really about power, I think, and, and who has the power and who, who doesn't have the power, and teachers looking at it from a kind of hierarchical position. You know, the truth of the matter is, is that teachers cannot accomplish anything they want to accomplish without the support and help and partnership of students. Yeah. Uh, you know, we think about how teachers are measured, right? Accountability is going to be student learning. Mm -hmm. Well, if the students choose not to learn from you, then mm -hmm. you're not achieving your outcomes either, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that relationships really matter in the classroom for the teacher. Um, but I think a big part of it is starting with more respect for the student mm -hmm. and more recognition of the kind of um, bi-directional nature of this, that, yeah. that the power is actually shared here mm -hmm. um, would be a different lens. And, you know, and you provide, and I think this is, you know, this is the kind of the peak of your paper in my mind because I think it's so foundational, it's so obvious, it's so powerful. And I think this is like a professor of mine in college used to always say, you know, the best answers are the most elegant, the clearest the simplest things, and your way to interrupt this is actually learning students' names. Mm -hmm. Actually learning students' names. Yeah. And I love that because it's not, you know, oh, there's a, you know, a five-step module I'm asking you to be a part of. Um, I'm not asking you to learn this whole new pedagogy. You're saying we don't learn our students' names. In particular, the majority of our teachers in their normative teaching practice that we know accelerates and reproduces inequities are also the same teachers that don't learn their students' names. Mm -hmm. Yes. Names are such a big signal in this society, you know? I mean, you know, when I first started looking at this, I was looking at what the teacher I was observing. I was getting it from the data, and I was thinking about how much time she spent with names. I mean, she just, she, it seemed to me an inordinate amount of time. She was spending tons of time. Yeah, she, she spent like the whole first day, which was two and a half hours of teaching, really drilling on names. I mean, a lot of attention to pronouncing the names right, to students using each other's names appropriately. Uh, and I, I started thinking about this, right? And, you know, not to make it too big of a thing, but it is just what it is. Without a name in a society, you don't exist. No. You actually are not, you are a non-person if you don't have a name. A name no. is actually your, your first step of existence in a society, right? And so one of the things that happens, I think, is, is, is funny about this. Me and my advisor have been leaning into this one for a long time now. Um, is how automatically it resonates with people who have yeah. ethnic and foreign and funny sounding yeah. names and how so many white people are like, huh, I've never thought of that. 
you know, it, it's one of those ways that we quietly and, and quickly and, and, and actually um, from first contact exclude and alienate the children. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the examples that I try to use are not all the, you know, traditionally black names that, that you'll hear about. Um, I try to use, you know, um, a Polish friend's name, yep. my Indian friend's names. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of people who don't have dominant or normal blah, blah, blah in the society names. Um, and they experience a lot of exclusion. I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't know what to call me, then how do we have any kind of a relationship? How do we have any kind of a bond? You know, no, this, this to me, this is the this is such a beautiful and powerful argument. The core of your piece, um, and I just want to read a, a a paragraph here because I just think it's it connects. Names are no small or peripheral matter. In a modern society, a name is necessary for recognizing one's existence. Mm -hmm. Consider how social security cards and driver's licenses, all forms of legal identification are prerequisite to accessing American society. I mean, your name is everything. Today, a name on an official state identification card is required for voting, which is the most fundamental action of a citizen in society. One may not exist without a name, but that existence will struggle to be effectual and contribute to self-determination. Names are so important to the bureaucratic function of schooling that checking a class roster or taking roll call is a teacher's first duty on the first day of school. This common routine activity serves as a first interaction between teachers and students, delivers a first impression. And what you go on to say is that mispronouncing student names is an act of disrespect and the microaggressions and relationships deteriorate from there. That's right. That's right. So, you know, the example, my favorite example of this is a teacher that I had in the school that I was with. And uh, his name was John Stancil mm -hmm. on paper, right? Well, what you didn't see on paper is that he was a junior. He was the second. Yeah. And so it, he, he was That's John Stancil. But his dad was yeah. also John Stancil. And one of the things that I noticed pretty quickly in, in my relationship with this guy was that if you knew him, mm -hmm. if you had a relationship with him, mm -hmm. you called him Eric. Eric was his middle name. He grew up in a house where there was two Johns. That's, that's confusing. So I'm Eric. If you didn't know him, you called him John. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and for me, that was just such a like, clear, sweet example of what we're talking about here, yeah. right? It's like, you know, teachers should be calling kids Eric. Yeah. They should not be calling them John, you yeah. know? Well, and, you know, what do you learn from that? You learn about he lives with his dad. He, you know, they're there together. They have a relationship. They're in some connection. There's just so much there that explores and unpacks. And I don't want to just drop the societal connections here because I just think that they're pretty significant. You talk a little bit about how there's actual research out there about the impact of having a white-sounding name versus a non-white-sounding name. So literally, this first contact between a teacher and a student in K-12 education magnifies and ripples throughout the entire aspect of society and is reproduced in Social Security offices, in getting a job, um, submitting your resume, um, yes. you know, trying to, you know, registering for a wedding. All these things are reproduced throughout society. And we're in a society that fundamentally doesn't value the unique individual names of our population, of our, of our citizenry. And there's something so fundamental about that, Blake. I just think that's just so powerful. Yeah, you know, the other part about it is that in, in our society, we're becoming increasingly um, class-based. Mm -hmm. And so people are actually using names nowadays as a way to signify uh, class background, which is even more of an impactful kind of a thing because, you know, if your name starts with Q apostrophe or DE apostrophe or mm -hmm. L apostrophe, that denotes something um, both for your family and for other groups. Uh, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really important signal. Um, and so what you recommend as the kind of consequential interruption here um, is um, for 
teachers to learn their students' names as kind of the, the big set of interruption that you're going to actually get to, to, to begin to make these shifts, right? I would, I would take a little, little different tack on that. I would say that um, what I'm fundamentally saying to teachers is to ask students what do they want to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a power question. That's an identity question. Tell right? me what you want to be called. Yes. Tell me what you, you want know, to be called. And, yes. and, you know, in Spanish, como se llama? says, how do they call you? How do they call you? You know, when I was in Chicago, because I was teaching black children and mm-hmm. I'm a black man, I would say to the kids, what they call you. Yeah. And every kid understood exactly what I was saying. So a kid's name might be Jeffrey, but he'll tell you they call him Neo. Yeah. And that's just what you call the kid. Yeah. And like for me, unless it was violently inappropriate, yeah. I was going to call you Apple if yeah. you want to be called Apple. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, it, in some ways, one of the big things about it is it gives children the opportunity to define their own identities. And yeah. you give them a chance to say who they are. I mean, think about this, right? Here's another example for you. A great majority of the Asian students in this country have white names that they only use in school. Yeah. So they have a name with their family that their family calls them. That's their identity. And they come to school and they pretend to be Christina. They pretend to be David. Think about how disjointed that must be for that child. Think about what that child has to leave behind when they go from being what their ethnic name is, their cultural name is, to being David, right? Like, are you even there? (laughs) Are you even in the room if you you have to be this other identity? So um, I think it's it's giving children the license to, to bring their full selves into the room and and to be who they are and to represent their culture and their community. And, you know, also I think a big thing is it's a way to signal respect. Mm-hmm. You signal that this is not me telling you yeah. what to do. This is you being in this space with me and we're yeah. gonna do this together, you know? Um, and uh, I, I think there are t- really, really positive returns to teachers. You talk about, you know, teachers then using this as a, to extend this, you know, creating respect, understanding, you know, what the student wants to be seen as, who they want to be in the classroom, and then kind of extending this out to the kind of the whole normative teaching practice in terms of co-constructing knowledge with students about their identities and about knowledge in the classroom. And this is a very powerful way that you argue has a way to interrupt the practices of most of the teachers we, we talk about. Right. I mean, the use of names is, is necessary for all academic studies, right? Yeah. I mean, what do we do? We cite people, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, what you do is you say, Albrecht, Dewey, right? All these yeah. people in my papers, right? Um, the teacher in the classroom that I was observing actually did that with the students in the classroom. Yeah. And it worked phenomenally well because yeah. one of the things that helps us remember things is remembering who said it. Yeah. You know, the context around the statement is actually one of the things that helps us capture it. So, you know, at the end of the program, she gives an assessment and kids literally say in the assessment, I'm using Jamari's method. Mm-hmm. I'm using Cassie's conjecture. Right. They're literally citing the people in their classroom. But that's exactly what academics is about. <laughs> so how how crazy is this that we literally teach kids their entire K through 12 that they have to do it by themselves and then you graduate and you work in a field and it's like, oh, by the way, actually you have to collaborate with other people and you have to share ideas and you have to share responsibility and you gotta source other ideas and you gotta reference the greats and you gotta learn the greats. Your ideas should build on the greats. And you're like, wait a second, but my entire K through 12 life was like, what did Landon think? How did Landon solve this problem? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a pretty big disjointed factor in our society that I think is, we don't really reconcile that. It's funny, I've heard this described before as a school crime. Mm-hmm. You know, most, most of the things that you really want to do in the society, I mean, like, even as adults, when do we go it alone about any problem that we really want to work on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, one of the first things you do as an adult when you want to work on a problem is have a meeting. 
<laughs> I mean, that's one of the first things that we, we jump to, right? And yet, for students to get together in the back of the classroom and talk about how they've solved a problem is a school crime. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's against the rules. Yes. It's against the rules. You can get kicked out for that. You can get kicked out for it, but yet it is the foundation of the kind of employees we want to be with, the, the folks we want to work with, the people we want to spend time with and work on projects with. Being in a society. Yeah, being <laughs> I mean, in a society. Amongst other people, yeah. yeah. So let, you know, I have uh, one last quote and one last question for us uh, to kind of take us to the next, um, kind of the, to kind of the final conclusion here. Um, you have a quote here. If white teachers employ these teaching moves with non-white students, they are more likely to build productive relationships and get value instead of conflict from using student names. If a teacher is willing to kick the habit of whiteness to ostracize students, to make difference to in, into inferiority, her students are likely to benefit in terms of learning outcomes. Even if these practices do not correlate directly with scores, they undoubtedly improve the lived experience of non-white students. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, scores and testing and all that kind of stuff is a whole other conversation, and I think there's some, some challenges there, especially around children of color. But, you know, for me, one of the big things that I would love to see happen in education going forward is more dignity for children dignity. who are um, overlooked and underserved. The, 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 the black and brown and poor children in society, I mean, for whom these experiences are, let's just be honest, they're degrading, they're humiliating, it, it's, it's, it's brutalizing to them. Um, and so for me, just starting with, do the children feel better, is actually an outcome that we should be pursuing. I mean, these are children. And, and, and the fact that we feel okay to be harsh towards them and, and that they suffer in these schools, it's, 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 a, it's morally repugnant. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's not who we want to be as a society. And so, you know, for me, I know that we get very used to in this country the suffering of black and brown people. But, you know, when you see it with children, when you see this happening to kids, and you see it happening so early, and you know that there's going to be lifelong cascade effects of this treatment and this being ostracized and excluded, um, it's, it's just really unacceptable, you know? So I, I, I do think that a first step that we should be looking for in classrooms uh, is, honestly, is joy. Uh, do, do, do children enjoy being there? And I think we uh, extremely, we vastly underestimate the impact of joy on your persistence, your willingness to engage, your, your ability to, uh, to, 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 to come back again. Um, and, and so creating spaces where children can feel seen, um, where children can feel heard, where children can be themselves, is actually what schools should be. Um, you know, learning, I, I think, is the next step. But I think that without having that engagement, without having that, and engagement is a big idea, right? It's a mental engagement, it's an emotional engagement, it's physical. Without having engagement, we're not going to get anything else anyways. So we might as well start off with what can get us, um, can get the ball rolling. I love that. I think that's a beautiful um, kind of place to begin to close. So just very briefly, what's next for this research and what's next for where you want to take it? Uh, I would love to develop out um, through studies and, and, and through actually testing this with uh, adults around um, how would you inter intervene on these habits. Um, I think airing the habits, surfacing the habits would be pretty pretty easy. Uh, I, th I think you could do bias audits. I think you could ask kids, to be frank. You could just ask kids, what are the things that happen here that make you feel like you're not a part of the mm -hmm. space, that make you feel excluded or rejected? Um, but then the next piece is going to be, so then how do you help people through that, right? Because, you know, one of the things that I've learned over this last year in education reform is that we're not going to be able to throw anybody away. Mm -hmm. 
You know, we're not we're not gonna people are saying get rid of the bad teachers. Where do you think they're gonna go? What what do you, do you think they disappear after that, or they stop? They move out of education or any of those things? No, they're not. So if we're gonna start from the perspective that we're we're here for the teachers and the students, right? We're we're here for everybody. Then we have to think about well, how do we support people to to do better? And it, you know, it, it starts off with people who want to do better, right? I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. Uh, if you want to carry on with the production of inequity then we probably should find ways to fire you. But um, for everybody else who I assume is going to be the great majority, um, how do we actually do it? Uh, I, would love to, I would love to lean into that. Well, I wish you so much uh, luck and uh, best wishes in that endeavor, Blake, because the re- I fundamentally agree with you that uh, in a world where we prioritize relationships and seeing our students and bringing dignity first and foremost to our schools, um, I think everything else about our society can begin to have a different conversation and we can begin to look at things in a different way. So I wish you best of luck in pursuing that. And uh, thanks for the time today. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it.